unorthodox with the angry behavior analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The angry behavior analyst is all triggers, no warnings. Today's guests can be considered at the forefront of OBM within the field of behavior analysis. A master of leadership and known for his unique applications of behavior analysis from the field itself to MMA, I'm sitting down today with the Adam Grant of human behavior science, Dr. Polly Gavoni. Welcome to the show. Wow. Well, that was an awfully, thank you very much. That was an awfully <laughs> flattering uh, introduction. Uh, there are some amazing OBMers out there that are better than I am. You know, I'm, I'm good at speaking it and sharing it and applying it, you know, but there are people that are just uh, really wonderful in the field, people who I've I've learned from, you know, like Nick Weatherly, who is one of my co-authors, uh, uh, John Austin, who's just a, a guy that I I've uh, read some of his research uh, throughout the years and applied it and uh, got to have him on my own podcast recently. And he's a super cool guy, man. So there's some there's some great people out there. But thank you. Of course. Of course. I'm happy to have you. So today on the show, Polly and I are going to discuss some concepts like behavioral myopia, which Polly will probably do a way better job of explaining than me. And we actually have some questions for Polly that we'll save for the end. So Polly, would you like to dive in to what exactly does behavioral myopia mean? Well, uh, thank you for asking. It's something that I'm uh, pretty passionate about. So um, here, here's what it is in a nutshell. Uh, I feel like, you know, the science of human behavior is the greatest science in the world. And so the, the case in point I make to support that is that what other science can improve other sciences by improving the respective performance of their scientists, right? So it's just um, an amazing science and it's the science of helping. It's the science of helping to improve quality of life for, you know, ourselves, for other people, which I'm very passionate about, uh, you know, helping leaders and coaches, you know, bring out the best themselves so they can bring out the best in others. And so we are armed with this just amazing toolbox for doing those things. And we use it very well when it comes to working with people with sp uh, special needs. And thank God it's there for them because, well, what, what would they do? I mean, we've taught people to walk and talk and, you know, uh, you know, reach their, reach their potential and then some. But the odd thing is if you go into, say, a behavior analytic organization, you look around. You'll be very, very hard pressed to find leadership, management, supervision applying the science of behavior with those that they're supporting, right? Those they're supervising, those that are leading. And how would we know this? Well, you just think for yourself if you're listening to this, if you are in some sort of leadership position or any supervising position, management position, et cetera, and you've ever engaged in behavior like blaming. And whether it's out loud or, you know, just even privately to yourself uh, or, you know, yelling at somebody or, you know, getting mad at them. And this is all human behavior. You know, it's all natural for us to do things like that. So I don't want anybody to judge themselves for doing it. But you are effectively no longer looking at things through a scientific lens. Right. So because we know that if somebody is not performing to a standard, we have to look at the environment and see what's maintaining their current behavior and 
you know, what changes in the environment may need to be put in place in order to get better behavior from them. We have to know if they're not performing to a standard because it's a skill deficit or it's a motivational deficit, you know, and, you know, if it's a skill deficit, that's an easier fix. We have to give them the skills. You can be as mad as you want. If they don't have the skills, they're not going to be able to perform to the standard. And if it's a motivational deficit, now you're getting to things that are more sophisticated, but, you know, there are things that we need to do. And part of it is like us. If my fighter is not performing well, if I'm leading in uh, an organization or uh, uh, a, a school um, and things aren't doing well, then I'm going to first look at my own behavior and think about what I need to do more, less, or differently to have a positive impact on those people. So, uh, yeah, that's what I mean by, by behavioral myopia. Behavioral myopia is that we are forgetting about the behavior science when it comes to working with the adults that are around us, above us, because so, we can leverage the science going up. You might be pissed off at leadership, but, you know, hey, leadership is in a very, I mean, it's extremely important because it can be very difficult, but you can leverage the power of positive reinforcement to positive reinforce good leadership behavior, right? I mean, positive reinforcement or reinforcement as general is omnidirectional, you know, use it, use it a lot. And so when you do have a problem, you can go to people and, you know, help them to uh, make a difference. So, you know, that that's what I mean. And I, I think that everybody should be equipped with an OBM toolbox. And I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a consultant, but in any organization, um, once you start trying to get uh, results through the behavior of others, you're really in the realm of OBM. And that's almost everybody. Almost everybody is trying to do that unless you're working one-on-one -on -one with a learner and, you know, uh, you can just, and you're going to be able to fade and that environment's going to support that learner's behavior. Well, then you're almost always going to have to change the behavior of those in that environment, which is almost always going to need to happen. Does, does that make sense? It does. It does. So it sounds a little bit like the myopia is almost short-sightedness because you mentioned the blaming, which, which can be emotionally driven versus the, and, the, and is that what you're referring to when we kind of abandon science and move more towards our visceral reaction? Yeah, something? yeah, we, yeah, that's exactly right. And I will say that it's so prevalent that I'm like, why, what is going on here? And uh, I really think it's conditioned into us through our coursework. When we start learning about the science, we get so deep into the principles and a lot of the Examples that are provided are working at a very molecular level, and it's also working a lot with uh, those disabilities. And again, thank goodness that is there. Of course. But I think we, for more generalization, we need to have more exemplars uh, so people can see it being used with you know, those in special needs and in sports and organizations and schools and just across different settings, the same concept but applied in areas that are topographically different because we know that's all functionally the same. Yeah. And this is actually, I'm going to insert one of the questions that a listener had for you, which is relevant to all of this. So you, did you start off in special needs and autism intervention? And if you did, how did you merge out into other areas of application? Well, so I actually started out in social work and um, okay. nobody goes into social work because they want to make money, first of all. Exactly. <laughs> and, and somebody said, uh, you know, hey, they're giving this behavior course. And if you take the behavior course, you're going to you can make 50 bucks an hour doing something. I'm like, well, I'm broke, you know, so I'm going to go ahead and take that course. I thought it was like a crisis management course or something like that, which I had taken before. So I took it and I'm like, 
oh my God, this is kind of like the way I thought things were, you know, and it just made sense. They're just words for everything. And uh, I love, you know, the coursework uh, so much that I ended up and I was at, I was in an alternative school at that time. And, uh, but as a mental health coordinator, and after I learned about the science, uh, you know, I just more and more, I realized how much everybody was kind of sitting around trying to diagnose people. And, uh, we really need to take a look at the environment more. And, and, you know, so I started doing some things differently immediately. And I, and I ended up getting a job as a district behavior analyst and I didn't, I wasn't surrounded by a behavior analyst. Uh, so it was new at that I, time somewhat, I'm I, sure. I, I didn't know what I was doing. And, uh, in fact, I'll be honest, I didn't really like some of the people I was surrounded by. I felt they were, it just felt like, you know, it was almost like classism in, in the field. And I feel like it's changed since then. I mean, I was just like, I wouldn't even sometimes tell people I was a behavior analyst because like, gosh, man, like, you know, they weren't being received very well. And there were good people just engaging in behavior that, they didn't realize, man, as, as like a, we were essentially serving as consultants and you have to understand that it's the same science. You have to understand like what the reinforcers are, not just of the student, but all the adults up the chain, right? What's important to them. And so um, I didn't, I was, I was thrown into an ASD class with no experience at all. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? The school had just opened and they had, I'd never been in one before. And uh, there was no curriculum. There was nothing on the walls. And the kids were going freaking, they were actually taken out of an alternative ed school. And they were the most severe kids in the district. And uh, they were dangerous. And so I think, you know, because I'm a big guy, I'm a fighter, you know, not that they think I'm going to beat the kids up or anything like that, but I'm tough, you know, in their mind. And so they put me in another big guy in there. It looks very much like me, Frank Krukowskis. And, uh, you know, he just said, people were just like, just everybody leave because the kids were just going nuts. They were trying to break the door down, get out. We were blocking the door. Wow. And yeah, well, I mean, we, we got it under control. And uh, so uh, I, mean, I know I'm not quite getting to the answer to the question yet, but my point there is like, I did not come out of the ASD stuff. That was not my, you know, where, where my strengths were. I always just naturally gravitated towards like, the systems because I, you know, like, look, it's just none of these individual interventions are going to work if there's not a system to support it, right? Like tier three stuff, you know, you need tier one to make the tier three stuff work. But uh, how I got into doing the things that I'm doing, uh, I didn't do it. One of the things was that I was a slacker. I, in my mind, I was, and I, and I think I was. I wasn't going to conferences. I wasn't reading research. I was just like, kind of a natural Richard Fox says diagnosed or gave, labeled some people like natural behaviors. And I felt like I wouldn't that category. Things just made sense to me. And so I would do things and rather than, and then I would start thinking about, well, why am I being successful here? And then I would unpack it behaviorally, right? Oh, okay. This is that, this is what they call that. Okay. And then to where it came to OBM, I thought, well, you know, in even in MMA and MMA and boxing, like everybody's doing this stuff. It's the greatest science in the world. I know everybody's doing it everywhere. And so I just started doing things. And, uh, you know, I read the book, Bring Out the Best in People by Aubrey Daniels. I'm like, okay, this makes sense. It's what I learned in my coursework, which, by the way, I didn't come out of a university. I came out of a behavior analysis, Inc. It's before you had to have be a university approved program. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So I didn't even have that. I had no mentorship, no. No, nothing. I mean, Frank, this guy, Frank did mentor me a little bit at the beginning, but it was like, you know, a, a question here, a question there, you know, and he gave good responses. So I don't want to take away from that, but I had no formal mentoring. Um, and uh, so I just started applying the things that, all right, 
Aubrey Daniels says this is what you're supposed to do, but this is just the science of human behavior as I know it. And so I did it in small chunks, like in a school that was really struggling, like changing their arrival time and not because uh, I thought that um, – and the school was a mess. It was like the kids had taken over the school. And I didn't decide to change their arrival time because I thought, you know what? I'm going to do behavioral momentum here and I'm going to call it quick wins. I did it because I'm like, how the fuck am I going to change this whole school around, man? There's 40 classrooms and there's 600 kids and the kids have taken over. But, you know, let me try this hallway, you know, and that worked and it produced a valued outcome for the people in the school. Uh, the students were behaving better. The teachers felt good about it, and they bought into what I was bringing to the table. So it established me as a reinforcer, and that's why I ended up writing the book Quick Wins. I'm like, man, this is how you can get. It's like, it's like organizational behavioral momentum. It's like this is how you can get change. And we started doing some of those things, and they also bought into the science more, right? So it paired the science because they had PBIS at the school, and that's uh, yeah, positive behavior interventions and support. Um, which is a systematic approach, and it's largely like you know using OBM, but it's, it's missing a link, a feedback loop, and that's up the chain to the district. There's got to be contingencies that if the principal doesn't buy in, there's got to be some contingency to get them to at least engage in the behaviors required to embed and keep PBS going well enough and long enough so they can see it's a positive, you know, they experience positive reinforcement for it. So, um, to coming back to that question. Uh, I didn't, you know, come out of that and uh, I had no formal training in doing it in MMA or doing it, uh, you know, do, uh, doing OBM in uh, schools or organizations. I just read and did and uh, it produced outcomes. And when I started talking about it, uh, when I got the, you know, the guts up to go talk about quick wins, uh, which was many years later uh, at a, a behavior analytic conference, that's where I was finding out, like, you know, people were like, wow, you did that? I'm like, really? You mean, like, everybody's not doing this stuff? I, right. <laughs> it, just, it just makes sense to me. Everybody should be doing it. So, you know, did that answer the question, do you think? I think so. I think that maybe if we got into the the pieces where you went from, you found that you kind of trailblazed a path in a lot of ways because you assumed everybody else was doing OBM. So in terms of where you saw growth of OBM in the field and maybe how you contributed to moving beyond just one setting would help our listeners a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So um, a couple of things now, when I, I, you know, education is very important to me. I, I don't think for me, I don't think there's anything more important than education. I mean, there's a lot of focus on, of course, we want to improve quality of life and we want to reduce uh, incarceration and, and poverty and yada, 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 you know. And I'm like, man, if we don't give everybody an opportunity through a good education, then how are we going to make, you know, like a, a positive difference? And so, um, you know, I, I just was trying to make a difference there, but I got frustrated with the educational system. And the system is very much like an or organism with setting events and antecedents, you know, and consequences that maintain their behavior or lack of consequences, right? Because if you don't have, you know, the right consequences in, in place for the right behaviors, then you get all sorts of bad stuff. Uh, so um, out of that frustration, this is when I decided to go back and uh, I, I came home. I, I talk about this in one of my speeches because it's true. But I was complaining to my wife for like the, you know, hundredth time. And, uh, you know, about just like, what are they doing, you know, at, at you know, at the, in leadership levels. And 
she just looked at me very lovingly one day when I did complain this one time and she said, quit bitching, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I was like, what do you mean a bitch? And, you know, and I pouted for a little bit in a couple of days and I thought she's right. And, uh, she was right because I can either accept it, change it or leave if I can't. And so that's exactly what I did. I, I ended up going back and getting two degrees in leadership, one organizational leadership. And, um, I was looking at it through an OBM lens, which what I had to say was so different and clear to other people because the science is very precise, you know? Um, and it, it, it gets rid of all like the kind of the foggy stuff and, you know, it just makes it very uh, practical for people, and which is where I live in the area of practicality. So um, when, when I had, uh, when I was changing these schools around, they actually pulled me, I actually became an administrator and not that I wanted to be, but they're like, kind of like they, 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 they had an alternative school and they said, well, you know, you need to kind of prove yourself. And then I thought, well, maybe if I go in there and I do this, then I can get the district to embrace OBM. And I did. I did an alternative school and they actually pulled me out. They've never done this before anywhere. Six months in, they pulled me out or four months in, whatever it was, half the school year. And they said, we need you to go into the school because the school was a mess. Uh, it was elementary school, high poverty school, kids, uh, law enforcement, I was told, was being called out there twice a week. I mean- and they said, we want you to turn around. So I thought, all right, man, you know. So uh, they dropped me in there, and, and I did. And while I was there, um, it was actually right when I was there, I reached out. to. I heard uh, Manny Rodriguez give a talk at a, a FABA conference. And um, I said, you know, Manny, I really like what you had to say and how you had to say. It was very practical and for people, and this is the world I live in. And I said, I've written a bunch of stuff. At this point, I had been putting stuff on LinkedIn because – um, when I get pissed off about things, I write, you know what I mean? Or very passionate about, right? Mm -hmm. So I leveraged that and I put it on LinkedIn and people mm -hmm. read it and they like it. And that was a big positive reinforcer to me. So I ended up accruing like a lot of material. I said, you know, why don't we write a book together, man? You know, I'm doing this stuff in schools and I have some stuff on leadership and we did. And that's where we wrote quick ones. And this is, this is, you know, relative, relevant to the story, at least from my approached and how I got where I'm at because when I threw Manny, uh, when I went to his new school, he was heading up a OBM, um, you know, uh, internships and uh, he brought a, a OBM intern, Shauna Garman was her name at the time. Um, and, um, you know, which they came in there and uh, they did an OBM project with me and made a difference. Well, later on, Shauna had left and I went to another organization and uh, I guess she must have liked my leadership and what was going on because she recommended me for them to have me come in and be their COO. And at that point, and I was in the district and uh, I was still disillusioned uh, that the district didn't want to do the things that we were doing to nobody else was turning around these schools. But, you know, the, the team of folks that I was working with to do it, I don't want to say it was all me. It was a team of leadership, but it was the OBM approach that was really, you know, being used to guide it. So I, I went over to be the COO there. And I want to say this, that the district was not budging on what I had to say, and I would get very angry with them. A more mature- Really quick, Polly. Sorry. Yes. Budging in terms of your recommendations? Yes. I'm like, okay. look, I'm changing. Like, nobody else is doing this. You called me in to change the school around. Okay. Right? It's not mm -hmm. like nobody else could do this. You've had everybody else come in. They couldn't do it. This sure. stuff works. We can do this for all schools, right? You can do this at the district level. And um, 
you know, they were like, no, we need you to stay there. You know, I'm like, because I'm like, I, so it was very frustrating. But again, I was taking off my, I was suffering a bit from behavioral myopia. I needed to understand what their reinforcers are. And, um, you know, like I was somewhat of, uh, I forget, one of the district leaders called me something. It was, it was, uh, oh, I, I forget the word that she meant, but it's kind of like, oh, anti-establishment. She said, and she was very nice about it. You know, she goes, you're kind of seen as anti-establishment. I'm like, look, I'm anti-stuff that hurts people, <laughs> you know, um, you know, so if that's the system. What's going on? I'm anti that. Yes, I am. There's a better way to do this stuff. You know, we have people that are unhappy, our retention's bad, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not going to say it's all the schools everywhere, right? And these are the schools that I was supporting, which were very difficult. Um, but what I should have done differently back then was understand more of the reinforcers and establish myself more as a reinforcer, right? Because what I find is in leadership, like people want to be the hero of their own stories. And I never took the time to go like network because in my mind, that was like butt kissing. And it, a more mature me uh, would have said, you know what, even if it is butt kissing, do it for the good of the students, right? Go out there, build a relationship with these folks. Let's get them, let, let them get to know me a little bit more. Find out what's important to me, ask the right questions, say the right thing. And maybe they would embrace the, the science and OBM and doing it. So I didn't do it right. You know, so I don't, I can't blame them. I have to blame me that I should have done something different, but so that's neither here nor there, but I'm sure there's people out there listening to this that are having the same experience and you have to keep your lens on, right? And you have to know the reinforcers. You have to establish yourself a reinforcer. You have to help people find a quick win, right? And so they engage in something with low response effort that produces a valued and visible outcome for them. And then you're more likely to be able to make change where you're at. And uh, but anyway, so I took the show on the road and was a CEO at another organization and they were had very high turnover and we got that top turnover way down and then went to another one because I wanted to do stuff in schools again uh, and uh, ended up being plucked out to become the uh, ex executive director and executive director and CEO at another company. But this whole time I was still writing and uh, I started was being out there more. I was putting videos out and uh, of course I had another book out and I end up uh, writing, a, 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 you know, f five books at this point. Uh, again, all everything very practical. Um, I was passionate about it. And I always felt like this is not where I'm going to hang my hat for the rest of my life. You know, I want to, like, not have strings on me, uh, but never, you know, like to have strings on me. I just want to be able to, I, 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 you know, I feel like I'm a valued, very, I'm not perfect, certainly who is. I feel like I'm a very valued person and I want to use the science, you know, to, to help people and sharing it is part of my passion. It's like my why and it feels so good to inspire people. Um, and also being in a leadership position organization, it's freaking tough, even though I know what to do a lot. Of, I mean, science doesn't give you the answers, but it gives you the best way to find them, right? It's still challenging. You're still dealing with the history of a whole bunch of people, you know, and, uh, you know, that can be very challenging. So, but OBM can make it far, far less challenging. But, uh, you know, I, my why again is disseminating and inspiring and doing these pieces of it. And I love doing that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, that's the way I, I got it. I made change and then I sh shined a light on it. Cause at first when I was making change, I did it very quietly. I didn't want people thinking I was doing it just to say, look at me, what I'm doing. I didn't want people to think I was just trying to, 
network and have a career move. I wasn't trying to move up the ladder at all. It I wasn't tried. performative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was so, legitimate. Yeah, so that's the way I did it. Made a change, shine a light on it, made more changes, shine some more light on it through my different ways, you know, and then, you know, continue to, to do that and put myself out there more with it. I get, had anxiety about it at first, going out and speak to people uh, because I speak differently. Um, you know, I, I went to a lot of these conferences and there's a lot of, re I'm not a researcher, you know, I'm just, I don't like to speak that language. I'm thank thankfully we have researchers because none of us would be here without them. They inform the rest of us and they, they keep everything close to the science, but I'm about translating the covenant. You know, I'm about taking what they say and making it palatable for everyday, everyday life. And that's where I hang my head at. So I found my, my niche. I'm good at, you know, OBM seems to come naturally to me and my passion, disseminating the science and inspiring people. And I put those two things together. And so, uh, you know, that that's where I'm at now. So for someone where leadership and all of these things came naturally to you, and you did mention that you had very little oversight, mentorship, or supervision, you kind of learned on the fly, but it came naturally to you. So it would probably bear less of a burden for someone like you. For people that maybe don't feel like they were born into a leadership role, but want to pursue OBM, where do you think a good place to be would a good place to start would be? Yeah, uh, really good question. And a lot of people struggle with this. Now, I, I don't recommend people do it my way. Um, I would recommend that people find mentorship because there's a lot of trial and error in what I did. Had I had good mentorship, um, I wouldn't have made so many mistakes and I might have been more successful more quickly and not, not at the expense of the students and the teachers and everywhere where it's like I was doing things and like, you know, I'm kind of like a researcher testing it to see if it worked, you know, sure. uh, you know, and it did great. We just went forward with it, but, but, you know, that's not the best way to do it. Um, unfortunately, there's a, uh, a shortage of, for whatever reason, OBM was, had been, I'm trying to make that change. It's been my kind of, you know, uh, torch I've been carrying recently saying that every behavior analyst should learn OBM. You know, I, I personally think, you know, Supervision falls under the umbrella of OBM. So everybody should learn OBM first and then, you know, refine their techniques for supervision because you're looking at the clinical aspects of things, right? And link it to the task list and everything, you know, that's a standard we're trying to get people to engage in. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that you should study it at a university. Um, I teach at Endicott, you know, so I'm a little bit biased, but there's a lot of good programs out there. Um, and then uh, finding yourself a mentor in this area, I mean, they're out there. Um, you know, if you were to put something on like LinkedIn, you know, or there's a OBM network or uh, there's, you know, Facebook groups with OBM and saying like, hey, I'm looking for uh, mentorship. But I'll tell you that a lot of a lot of the people, well, at least before I say go to that part of it, if you want to be successful with OBM and but they're not going to, you're not going to find jobs that say we need an OBM consultant, you know, very, very rare. I know some of these people and some of the positions, but there's just not many companies out there doing it because our science has done such a poor job of disseminating and most people don't know how wonderful it is. So if you're going to make a difference, make it where you're at, right? Take the concepts and do it from whatever position that you're at right now. If you're, you're, if you're a behavior analyst, you're probably supervising somebody, right? Or a few people. So use the principles to bring out the best in those people, right? And when, and then so, 
Don't tell people that you're doing a great job, right? Reinforce them into it. Let them see that, hey, why are these people performing so well? Um, that actually happened at the last uh, – in one of the organizations I was at recently, my colleague Anika was uh, making a big difference. And all of a sudden, her the, the people she was supervising were performing so well. And they're like, well, what's going on here? And I'm like, well, here's what's going on, you know? And she was using some, you know, really good OBM techniques, including, you know, some instructional design stuff. So, um, you know, I think you need to make a difference where, where you are at. Um, don't let – try to find – you know, for sure, trying to find somebody that can supervise you. I think that with the push now, I think more people are becoming aware of OBM. Um, I think you have two kind of types of OBMers. You know, you have those who are heavily into the research half of it, you know, and you have the applied folks. Um, so know that one is going to keep you close to the science and what the research says. And the other one is going to, and this is where I live, are going to be like, all right, here's what it looks like in in, in the field. And it would be ideal to have both, you know, uh, if I could pick one, I would say the field one. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm biased about that. And that's nothing against the folks that are, you know, working in higher ed and doing the research because they certainly have plenty to offer. And maybe people want to get out there and be researchers as well, or they take that research and they go apply it elsewhere. So there's nothing wrong with that. But try to make a difference where you're at. Um, put your name out there in the different uh, organizations uh, and the groups. Um, and, uh, you know, I was coming to the, a lot of the people are consulting and they're, you know, if, if somebody's looking for supervision at that, at that level, it's not, it's not, it's expensive, you know, because, you know, it's like, all right, I can do an hour here making this kind of money, you know, and then going back and doing supervision. It's, it's a time, you know I mean? You, there's only so much time in the day and the week and, uh, you know, billing out at a rate that's four times less than you normally do. You know, and I do listen, I've done and please don't inundate my my LinkedIn. Like I get, you know, calls all the time or uh, emails all the time asking me questions. And I make sure that like a couple times a month I get on with somebody for like a 30 minute talk and just help. That's great. Sure. Yeah. And I and I and, I, and you know, there, and that, that's a true story now. Um, if it's too much, I'm like, I just I'm sorry, I'm already meeting with people. This and I might schedule them down the month and then that fills up, you know. Um, but know that 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 is, you know, that you whoever is listening to this, they can be that next person, you know, they can take their knowledge and skills and build off of it. Look at the literature that that's out there. There's some great books by Aubrey Daniel. If you're in education, please, you know, pick up some of my books. And I don't say that because I make money off of those. You don't make money off of selling books. It's not about that. I make like a dime and a quarter off of different books Some books. I make zero money at all on. So, uh, you know, leverage whatever's out there. And I wish I had better news on the amount of people that are uh, out there doing OBM mentorship or supervision. But there are people out there. There are people. Uh, but, you know, you, you kind of have to pick through the bushes to find them. I'm really happy you brought this up. Num number one, this is really great advice, firstly. So thank you for that. And two, you mentioned a little bit earlier that if someone is seeking an OBM type of role, you're not going to go on Indeed and type in OBM BCBA. <laughs> I mean, yes. those those roles can't be found. And like you said, they're not marketed that way. So for those that are starting off, like you said, making change within their organization, and maybe they take on somewhat of what you're doing with these kind of free discovery calls, would that mean that we kind of have to 
pave the way in our own business sense for this to become a more regular form of supervision or mentorship since there are so few people out there? Do you mean in our field? Yes. Yeah. When I think that's what's going on right now, I do think that it, it's growing now when I, you know, when I don't, I'm not positive about this. People can look at it, but quick wins might've been the first, I know there was research done on OBM in a education, but generally it was like at that, the classroom level is very small scale. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you can, again, you can look at, you know, teacher as a CEO and the students as little employees, you know, so it was sure. increasing, you know, feedback delivery to the students in order to produce behavioral outcomes or something. I, I don't remember what it was using goal setting with teachers. I don't know, but not at like the, the a school level or a, uh, or a uh, district level. So, you know, there is, there are more and more uh, books and, and literature out there focusing on OBM and more people talking about it and more people desiring it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I do feel like the field is moving in that direction. And, but I mean, if you look at it, it's really, it's still in its infancy or maybe it's like, it's terrible twos, you know, because <laughs> it has, it has grown, you sure. know, uh, and I think people are afraid of the word organization, right? When you hear organization, like, well, I can't be that it's big, but if you think the word organization, if it's broken down, it's just a group of people, right? Two or more people, you know, working together towards, or maybe three or more people working together towards towards a, a common goal, right? So don't let the word organization like screw you up. You know, I mean, you could, there are levels to OBM. You know, uh, either there's the OBM is made up of a you know former level. There's processes. There's leadership. And you can look at behavior systems analysis, which gets very broad. Like you don't have to know every aspect of it you know you can be familiar with some aspects i think you know at least you know uh, you might decide you want to be the person that's really good at the process level you know you of course and if you look at the performer level that's just abc's of behavior you know if you pick up any aubrey's work and you see antecedents and you can see consequences and they're going to talk about antecedents but they're not going to be antecedents for like you know, in terms of like what's triggering misbehavior, you know, they're going to talk about like, hey, and it seems sort of like goal setting, you know, and the goal setting, you know, it gets behavior moving, but doesn't maintain behavior. It's the consequences. So it's the same thing we all know. It's just in, a, in an organizational setting. So it is, you know, it is moving forward. There's more talks about it, more requests for it in, um, in different, uh, you know, uh, um, conferences. And so it, it's moving and more talks that are, I, th I think, more palatable to people, which I think is very important. It's kind of like, you know, we have disseminating disseminators outside of the field, but we need disseminators inside of the field. And so um, I got a good buddy, uh, David Roth. David Roth, man, he's, do you know David? Uh, he's the, uh, he was the former editor in chief of Operance Magazine, man. He's a brilliant guy and he's so humble. I love this guy. And so, like, I look at David as, uh, as a, Inter, let me see. This would be an inter, uh, um, inter behavior disseminator. You know, interfield, right? So he's sure. he's disseminating within our field. Uh, so he takes something that's very complex, right? He explains it to me because that stuff's just too complex, man. You know, it gets very deep. Like, oh, that makes it. He's explaining mindfulness in a from a scientific uh, perspective. I'm like, oh, that's brilliant, man. So I'll take what he says and then I'm and explain it to like the layperson. So I'm I'm intra, I'm outside of the field. Or do I have that wrong? 
No, intra enters within, enters without. I think. Uh, yeah, somebody intra, else can look it up. Intra, it, it almost sounds uh, backwards, but intra I think is within, and then inter is yes. outside. Interfield, of, yes. I'm yes. interfield disseminating, and uh, he's interfield disseminating. But we need to merge the two. You know, I, I want, I want. Absolutely. Look, the, one of the things about researchers are, man, they're so good at what they do, and they're passionate about it, but they're not necessarily like. It's kind of like they're the drummers in the band, you know. I mean, drummers are like great, but they don't want to be in the front and speaking. It's not where their passion is, you know. It's not that they don't want to be the singer or whatever. And some people love doing that stuff, you know. I didn't used to like it. I was petrified to be up in front talking about people. But when I saw that I was able to like, at a small scale, like inspire or make somebody smile or like, hey, that was a good point. I was reinforced into it. And so, like, a good melding of researchers or people at that level and people like me and David, you know, and to broaden out, to, to, to disseminate within the field and outside of the field, I think that's going to help, you know, broaden uh, more people within the field applying OBM and also the want for OBM services and ABA services, right, uh, outside of the field. So we got to have that marriage of the two. Sure. Within a lot of agency settings or school systems, or I guess more of the traditional settings that would benefit from an OBM practitioner, what would your response be to those that may be proposing an OBM role and the agency responding maybe with, well, we already have behavior analysts. Don't, don't they do the same thing? Yeah. Uh, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, well, I think the answer is going to be like, well, no, not, not necessarily. They don't, you know, it's uh you know, OBM, you know, behavior analysis looks at the, you know, the, the individual, you know, as the, as the unit of study, you know, and OBM is broadening that scope. So it's, yes, it is taking the same science, but is applying it at a different level. And uh, I would say that, again, we need to always find out what's reinforcing to those people and say, like, listen, you know, when you know what the reinforcers are, like, you, you want your job to be easier, <laughs> That's a big one, you know. Right. <laughs> you want to produce valued outcomes. Um, you know, you want people, you know, you want to improve retention. You know, so you ask them the questions to find out what is important to them. And then you align, you know, uh, outcomes of OBM. But I think before you even ask that question, you say, you know what, I'll tell you what, let's do an OBM project. You know, let's, let's pick a result that we want to uh, achieve. Let's engage the stakeholders in uh, pinpointing, you know, uh, that result and the behaviors that are going to lead to it. Let's set some goals and sub goals and accomplishments that as metrics along the way to let us know, you know, what we are, you know, that we're moving in the right direction. Let's set up a system of self-monitoring and uh, uh, feedback and uh, let's, you know, let's figure out how we're good. Let's plan for positive reinforcement, you know. Let's figure out how we're going to celebrate this stuff, how we're going to reinforce the behavior and celebrate successful achievement, accomplishments, and sub-goals along the way to achieving those goals. Let, let's show you that this can work. And if this works for you, you know, then why would you not want more of it, right? So we got to reinforce people into it. And if it doesn't, if it's not a lot of response effort for that person and it produces a valued outcome, they're going to be like, hell Yes. Let's do some more of this stuff, you know, but pick something small, pick, pick a quick win because whoever's doing it, they want to feel successful as well. Don't pick some large project, 
right? Like in my example of quick wins, it was a hallway. If I was working with a teacher, I would work on one transition, right? You, we need to reinforce people into things. So help people solve a problem, right? That uh, maybe is not too deep and is on a smaller scale and uh, use the science to do it. And it will increase the likelihood that they're going to want more of you and more of OBM. Sure. There's a book. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. I believe the title is the the workplace arsonist by Pete Havel. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure of his background. I think he does have more of a business background, but it gets into kind of the layman's term, uh, the layman's language of OBM and kind of industrial organizational psychology. And at what point do we throw in the towel when we've tried everything as an OBM practitioner? Like what would lead to the recognition that um, a collaborative relationship just isn't working? So, uh, so uh, first of all, I, I, that thought never, it rarely quite crosses my mind, you know, I'm like, as a, as a, practitioner, I'm like, I just haven't, I got to find out what the reinforcers are, right? I get, now I got to get them in touch with the reinforcers. And so that's why, you know, starting small and figuring, I'm not saying that that won't happen. Sometimes you have, uh, there's different types of leadership, right? And, uh, but even like the narcissistic leader, they still have reinforcers, right? They want attention. Absolutely. And if we can mm-hmm. do something that gets them attention and, uh, you know, produces some sort of, you know, other valued outcome for the organization, then why wouldn't they want you there? Um, so again, if I I don't, you know, it's like, I want to be beyond the 80, 20 rule, right? I don't want to be like, all right, 80, 20 rule, 80, help 80%, 20, like, man, I want like 95, five, you know what I mean? Or even more. Uh, So, but you're going to have stuff like that. But before you throw in the towel, reflect back. Did you do the things that, you know, are going to be the most helpful to you? Did you, did you find out what the reinforcers are? Have you established yourself here as a reinforcer? I mean, if you really have established yourself as a reinforcer, then you're probably going to be successful. If you haven't, you have to figure out why and what is that you have to do more or less or differently to put yourself in that position. Are you telling people how wonderful the science are or are you asking them really good questions and leading to them to the conclusion on their own? I had to learn strategies like spin selling, which is, to me is just a form of motivational interviewing. I'm still learning motivational interviewing. It's pretty complex. I'm actually r- making a course on it right now for the behavioral toolbox with Anika and Matt Sicoria. Um, it's, it's complex and it's very hard if you know what somebody should do to not just tell them, here's what you need to do and here's why you need to do it. But when you do that, it's kind of like if you went to a car, used car salesman, they're telling you all the wonderful things about the car. It turns you off because you're just feeling like you're being sold on something, right? Even if everything they're saying is accurate. But if they ask the questions and that you, you know, yeah, that's a good point. You come up with that conclusion yourself, then you're more likely to engage in the behavior change. In this case, you know, car salesman, it's taking the money out of your pocket and paying for something, you know? Um, and that's essentially what we're asking people to do is we're asking people to, you know, pay for something because it means they've got to invest their time and energy into do, doing something more or less or differently. So you have to make it worth it for them and they have to see that on their own. So, um, you know, coming back to your initial question, like when you're feeling frustrated like like that, make sure that you've leveraged the science to the best of your ability. And who knows, you know, maybe I look like somebody's Uncle Ralph that they just freaking hated. You know what I mean? No matter what I do. <laughs> I can't, yeah. you know, like that, that history of aversiveness is just too much to overcome. 
then I might have to write that off. But at least I know I can hold my head up and I've really tried this stuff and that didn't work and I've tried this. And it can be frustrating. You have to overcome your own history of frustration, which we're all human. And that's what I was unable to overcome when I was in this, the school district working directly, uh, being frustrated. I just didn't, you know, I, I just want to do things differently. But I, I know better now. I know better now. Sure. sure. So this is actually a great topic to stay on in terms of the frustrations that we inevitably encounter when we're in workplaces. A couple of listeners had questions as to the term quiet quitting. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually had to Google this term because my understanding was that we've lost face-to-face communication and people rely on just digital forms of essentially abandoning a workplace. But it seems more that they only do the bare minimum that's required and then nothing else. What What are your thoughts on quiet quitting? Well, first of all, I didn't even know that was a term for a long time. I had my own term. I don't even remember what I was calling it, right? But I'm like, people will quit, but they'll still be in your, you know, in, in the organization. So that's a result of just heavily, heavy use of aversiveness, right? Coercive workplaces create, what that is, is negative reinforcement. They'll do just enough to get by. So if we're looking at it behaviorally, that's what's going on. There are heavy contingencies of negative reinforcement. And, uh, you know, we have to, you know, we have, people need to, people need to be involved in things. They need to, to, to have a say, they need to be, uh, they need to receive positive reinforcement from people. Um, they need to feel that they're, they need to know what they're supposed to be doing every day. And they have to know that they're accomplishing that, which is a big reinforcer to people, right? One of the best things that, uh, you can have is knowing that you did your job at the end of the day. And how many of us listening to this right now has gone into work and weren't sure if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing? And that's a failure of pinpointing, right? And, and, and good, clear goal setting and, uh, and getting feedback to, to know that. And if there's, if you have really clear pinpoints, right, you know what you're supposed to accomplish and, uh, you know, a uh, result you're trying to achieve every day and, uh, behavior you're supposed to engage in. And there's a system of getting you feedback, whether it's self-monitoring, reporting out to recruit feedback or people coming and looking at you and giving the feedback. You know, people are going to be happy with that systems in because probably there's a lot of people out there doing more than they should be doing, you know, but people will just fall back to that standard. They'll do just enough to get by. And that those settings are compliance-based. They hurt retent, they hurt morale. Uh, they hurt psychological safety, right? Which is, you know, people don't, feel safe because they're not sure that they're doing their job. Uh, and they're probably not. They're doing just enough to get by, but it's a failure of the system. And it's a failure of leadership to set up that system because that's that's their responsibility. And I'm not saying they're bad people or failed people. We failed by not disseminating the science well enough so they want to embrace it and embed it into their leadership approaches. So I'm sorry for those people, and I've been one of those people. And we all probably have, but, you know, know that, uh, you know, again, your, your leaders and the people are managing and supervising, if you are in the, in the field, they're, they're probably suffering from behavioral myopia. So, you know what, use that, you know, when you get angry and bitter and all those things, that's like fuel, like Bobby Boucher tackling fuel, you know? So I think about that all the time, like tackling fuel. So when I was really angry about things, I channeled that stuff. Uh, and I, and it forced me to do things and get out of my comfort zone and you, and become more knowledgeable and 
want to come back and be better and show people better. And initially it was probably selfish and it was bitter that I was doing this stuff, you know, like F you, man, fuck you. I'm going to come back and I'll fucking show you, you know, but you know, uh, when I got it, then I'm like, you know what? I realized it was more me that I need to do things differently. And it wasn't them. They're a product of their own history. I was suffering from behavioral myopia, but I still was able to channel that anger in that, bad feelings and use it for something good, you know? And I'm not saying that's like an overnight thing. It's not like tomorrow you're going to wake up and things are going to be better. It's small changes every day leading into the consistency. The only thing I'm good at is being consistent, you know, staying on the track. And because I don't want to be where I'm at. I know if I don't do something a little bit more every day, I'll never get to where I want to go. And we have to have a vision to know that, right? And finding a vision, knowing what you value and having a vision it's not an easy thing to do. It's, you know, it's an easy word, but knowing like w- what your passion is, but it's not just about your passion though, because people might be very passionate about one thing, but it's not like their niche. You know, it's not that your passion right. can't drive you, but you still need the knowledge and skills to be successful. So you could make it your niche, but you got to go out there and you got to fill your, you know, your bucket with those knowledge and skills. So you might be passionate about OBM. I really want to do this. This makes so much sense. All right, go build up those knowledge and skills. And, you, you, the world is not going to stop for you while it's happening, right? You're still going to mm-hmm. be exposed to all these things, <laughs> but at least you know you're moving in that direction. And one day you're going to get where you want to go, you know? So lay that out. Use the science like, hey, what's this look like? How, where's that? Where do I want to go in the future with this, you know? And check those off as you go, you know? Start off with reading a couple pages and, you know, going back and getting a certification or a degree in OBM and you know, getting a project in your current organization and maybe moving up the ladder and, you know, leveraging OBM at different levels and whatever it is, man, you know, figure out what you, where you want to be in the future and set some goals along the way and start engaging in behavior to meet them. Sure. That's really great practical advice that could be applied uh, with very, I don't want to say low response ever, but it's simple enough. And it, as I said, it's practical enough, I think, for all of us to find ways to carve out those little uh, quick wins wherever we are. Well, and you know, and set up your environment, right? Leverage your environment. Like I have some books I'm going through. I'm going to be giving a talk on punishment at the end of this month uh, on my podcast, Thoughts and Rants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, look what I have right in front of me. If you see that, that's Bruce Sidman's book. Yeah. The Fallout of Coercion. So I arrange my environment. This is right next to my desk, right? It's here so I can open it up when I come in the morning read a couple pages, right? Highlight a couple things. If I just wait, I won't do it. So I got to do things for what works for me is doing things in small doses more frequently because otherwise I'll procrastinate, you know, and I'll just put it further and further down the line, but I can, I can do things in small chunks. And so it's getting in the, that's a habit though. I had to create that habit for myself, but the thought of like, you know, like the, the thought of like something building up is so aversive to me that it's much better to be in this habit. I feel so much better about doing these things in small chunks. Mm -hmm. Much more manageable. Yeah. One of, actually quite a few of the questions that I received for you were in regards to the Judge Rotenberg Center, the JRC, and if the fallout of, of, I guess, what's occurring now and what's being kind of put out there into the media stream, if those are direct results of poor leadership, I mean, it's probably impossible to answer, but. Well, all right. So I'm going to give you a very general, uh, well, <laughs> a, a very general talk on this because it's a very sensitive in nature, but you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I ain't afraid, throw me in the ring. Right. But I would sure. preface this by saying that um, 
I am not an expert in this level of intense behavior. Okay. Okay. I don't know. Uh, I have not been in there to see it with my own eyes, mm. um, which I think is extremely important. I've yes. seen a lot of hate comments online about it. Okay. And, uh, People who swear we should use positive reinforcement all the time and that they're engaging in very coercive behavior saying, don't do this stuff. So I'm like, well, that's interesting, you know. Sure. So here I'll give you an example of what my experience has been that's been related. So I can talk about my experience with this, right? Okay. Um, when I was in schools and I, I work for a professional crisis management association, right? We're crisis management. There are people saying that you should never restrain. Well, you know, they're like, we well, need to use positive reinforcement. I'm like, of course, I want, that's wonderful. Yes, I want that kind of environment. But you know what? This environment right now, this behavior is still occurring. I can't just magically make it stop. We have 50 teachers, 30 staff, right? A whole bunch of things that needs to be changed. And it's not going to change overnight. It's going to be a systematic change, right? It's shaping the organization against much like an organism. And that needs to be shaped. Certainly, anybody could come into that organization and find that school, for example, and find all sorts of shit that was going wrong, right? And it's not going to change overnight. Why? Because that's not the way human behavior works. We have to develop habits and we have to get them in touch with positive reinforcement. So when you say get rid of restraint, what do you want me to replace it with? And certainly people over restrain and do all this stuff, right? I wasn't. I demanded in these schools that I was at that they put cameras in there because I was always like, I'm going to be on the friggin' front page in the newspaper for restraining a kid. And the kids were fighting yeah. each other, right? Little kids trying to run out into the community. I had to restrain them. I had to stop them from going home. And then there were people that are saying that they would just over suspend them. Like, well, you know, the kid's banging on the door and blocking him from going out, you know, and he's kicking me in the nuts, you know, which happened, you know, which that's a, that's an antecedent for restraint. You know what I mean? I did the best to, 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 to avoid those kind of things. And, but I kept them from being suspended. And that year, the, the suspension rates went down from 795 suspensions down to 67, right? Now, it wasn't just from restraining. I had to create a room and it, it was a room where they can work their way out and people saying, well, you can't just have a timeout room. Well, I wasn't sending the kids out. They were being sent out of the room or they were running out of the room. I had to have somewhere to put them, like we'll put them back in the room. Well, you know what? If a kid just punched another kid in the mouth and gets put back in the room, you don't understand. You're not just looking at that one student's behavior. That's going to have a ripple effect across that classroom, right? And other kids now think, I want that badge of honor because that's a reinforcer in a community where there's, uh, you know, high crime rate, high poverty, you know, uh, and also you have to think about the impact on the teacher's behavior, right? Their morale and the ripple effect that has across the entire school. It can sink it, right? So when people said get rid of restraints, I'm like, man, you are not speaking from a perspective of somebody that's been in this situation dealing with this stuff. So, um, you know, the, the, the other part of this now when it comes to the, the CESS is that I, I literally, if somebody's out there, I want to experience it, okay? Mm -hmm. I want somebody to shock me. Um, sure. And so I want to find out how aversive it is because I, I also, I don't know, if when they say don't do it, what is, maybe you can tell me because I don't know yet. I haven't heard anybody say it. What is, what do we replace it with? What do you do when somebody's trying to gouge their eyes out? What are they saying to do? They're saying other than you should be always exhausting all positive reinforcement procedures, there isn't a whole lot of replacement. Okay. Well, that, that's, the, there's the, that's the point, right? Is that so behavioral do do? myopia? 
Well, you're well, right. So what do you, you're not, what you can't say just use, that's great, but the behavior is still occurring. So what are you going to do? So are, are we restraining them? Are we upping our mechanical restraints? Are they physical restraints? Are we using uh, medical restraints? Right. Is, and is that better than the shock? Now, I always wonder if it was called, and again, I don't know. Right. So if somebody is cancel culture, culture me, Please don't do that. You know, I'm giving you an honest perspective on it. I don't believe it. I don't want aversives to be used. You know, I don't want, I really want an environment with positive reinforcement, but I think doing something mild, right. And then making sure there's all sorts of positive reinforcement. It'd be great. Maybe I use a TENS unit. Are you familiar with a TENS unit? Yes. I used it for all my back injuries. (laughs) Yeah, man. So that's like a little electric shock, right? The stimulation. So I don't know if it's a conditioned emotional response that when you hear the word shock, it's like, man, shock is bad. When I told my dad about it, it was, you know, because my biological father actually had some struggles and he was in an institution a while back and they were shocking people and they were doing it bad for the wrong reasons, right? They were doing it just as just just to punish people, you know, for doing the wrong things, maybe not the you know, not trying to gouge their eyes out. And so, of course, it's responsible. That shock is bad. But what if it was called contingent electric tickle? You know, would we still get this kind of response or but maybe the shock is really bad. That's what I'm saying. I'd like to feel it because as a parent, right, I'd want to be an informed consumer. And I would say, you know what, what would I rather have? Do I want my kid unless you have some other alternative? To me, the choices are you're mechanically restrained, restrained, you're physically restrained, you're you're medically restrained. Right. You have all these things going on. Or uh, do I want this contingent electric shock? And uh, it, let's say it's like really aversive and it's really painful. Like, I man, you know what? I think I'd probably want one of the other restraints to have that. Of course. But let's just say it's something that's shocking and like it scares them a little bit. You know it what I mean? It startles you. It startles mm-hmm. you, right? And is, if we're doing that and we're also looking at the data and we see that something is going better, right? The intensity of the behavior is going down. The frequency is going down. The duration of it's going down. I need to know that that behavior trend is going in the right direction if that's being used. Uh, but again, I'm not an expert in this area. I do know that when I went to speak at ABAI because I was speaking about OBM in schools that I'm very passionate about, a couple of people, it was only a couple, but some people said some nasty things to me about it. I'm like, look, I I want to share this information like, all right, just because you're hating on ABI and maybe it's right, but there's still going to be people there that need help and I want to help them. So I don't want to punish these people who have already paid to come out there, you know, to support sure. this. But I'm also not going to jump on the bandwagon because an influence or some pe- other people are saying this is happening and, you know, or just because the word shock is in there. Maybe it is bad. I don't know. You know, I just don't know what the options are. And I only know my own experience with the crisis management. People are saying, get get rid of the restraints. And by the way, that same thing has happened with restraints. Now we have people because they won't use prone restraints and not all prones are equal. Some prones are really bad. We have a position that's on a mat and it doesn't use a, you know, there's no positional asphyxia and it's, you know, it's really safe. It uses, you know, uh, behavior analytic procedures for it. But now there's organizations that won't accept clients with intense behaviors because they don't have the they can't physically manage it right so there's this outcome of this hands-off policy or there's no horizontal mobilization policies that are unintended right it's good people that care like all these people that are saying that don't do shock they're good people you know what i mean they're not they don't want 
that. Right. But I don't want I, – I also don't think that those that are like either saying that's wrong or those that are saying me, like I don't know. I'd show me something better that we're all, all of a sudden the enemy. It should not be that way. We all collectively want the best for the individuals. Let's find that thing out. Like in, before I'd make that decision, I'd, again, want to see it. I'd want to experience it. And I'd want to have more knowledge about it. I'm not just going to jump on the bandwagon because other people are saying – this is bad. So I don't know if that, you know, if that lines with your thoughts or what other people are saying, that's how I feel about it. I feel the same way. And I also feel the need to preface my, my statements about this with anything that isn't incredibly dangerous to the individual. Of course, I think shock is completely unwarranted. There are ways to address disruptive, irritating, socially inappropriate, or maybe even mildly aggressive behavior without using something like shock. 100% agree. But my main concern with the outcries for shutting the JRC down, for example, I would just want to know where all of those participants would go. Where would those patients be sent? Because a lot of them aren't accepted anywhere in the country because of the severity of their behavior. So would they be sent back home? A lot of them are older and their parents are no longer alive. So I would just, that's what I wonder. And I, I worry that that's where that short-sightedness, that myopia comes in where we think shock is terrible. We need to get rid of it without recognizing that it might actually be saving the lives of a lot of people. Right. That's very well said. And I, I agree with that, you know, so show me what else there is. Show me what the options are. Sure. Of course, positive reinforcement needs to be part of, you know, the plan for for improving things. Um, but you know, really, if somebody, if somebody, if you know me, you know that I'm being very authentic about it. If I'm traveling somewhere and you guys have contingent electric shock somewhere in the area and you can line it up, I will go be shocked. I want to experience it for myself. I want to know, too. but even even if it, and I still want to know what the alternatives are. Of course, you know, we had to talk about the alternatives. Um, but yeah, that, that's my thoughts on it. Those are great thoughts. I think a lot of people are in agreement too, but again, as you mentioned, it's a touchy subject that can be kind of, um, hard to talk about objectively and openly. So mm -hmm. Polly, last question here before we, we wrap up a little bit, I would love to hear your thoughts on what sort of strategies and interventions you've seen for mitigating burnout. Well, I'd look at burnout as uh, if we're in an organization, I'd look at that. That's an outcome uh, of uh, systems that are not arranged very well, right? Good systems increase positive reinforcement, right? And if there's lots of positive reinforcement, you know, burnout is really minimized because people are engaging in behavior that's reinforcing to them, you know? And so I look at burnout as not accessing reinforcement a lot, you know? So uh, I think that's a, a big piece of the puzzle. Now, in terms of your own, let's say like uh, you're doing a lot of stuff, which I have my hands in a lot of pots uh, right now. And so I do experience that, like I get to the point where like, man, maybe I'm doing too much, you know? And so you really have to kind of uh, uh, judge your time. You know what I mean? You have to figure out how much time you have in a day and uh, how much time you have in the week and the month. And uh, for a long time, I would say yes to almost everything because it was an opportunity. And like, even if I felt anxiety about it, I'm like, I, like, I know when it comes, I'm still going to crush it, whatever it is. But now I'm having to be very uh, judicious about the opportunities that come my way and what I say yes to and what I don't say yes to. So I would say, you know, be okay with saying no. 
uh, it's hard to say no sometimes, you know, but, you know, explain to the person why or whatever it is. And, you know, you, you if you have a vision and, uh, you know, what, as you start to grow, you have more opportunities, you know, and this is where it becomes more of a problem. If you don't have a lot of opportunities, then you just kind of say yes to the opportunities, right? right? But as you grow, more come your way, then it's like determining which are the better opportunities and which are not. If you're feeling burned out in your job, um, maybe it's not, you know, you have to ask yourself, why? Is it where you want to be? Is it just the organization? Maybe you love the field, but you don't love the organization. Maybe as you heard me talk today, maybe they're missing some OBM systems that are allowing, you know, maybe too much is being dumped on you, you know? Uh, is there in your organization, is there a system that, you know, that gets feedback from you, like some social validity? How are you feeling about things like a climate survey? And are they doing that regularly? Not at the end of the year, which is a freaking autopsy. You know, right. <laughs> good, good organizations are going to be, which is, again, this is that, you know, behavioral myopia. I believe a lot in social validity. It's just a data point and it can be biased, right? But I think that needs to be weighed heavily because if people are feeling bad about things, that's a leading indicator that your retention is not going to be great. And it's also going to negatively impact performance and the consumers aren't going to get what they need. And so it means you have the opportunity, right? If you've got that data to make some changes that are going to improve retention, improve service delivery, and in the end, you know, improve profit for those who are, you know, in everybody, because you got to keep a business solvent. They got to make profit, you know? Of course. Um, I know I, I do believe though uh, organizational leaders or CEOs or business owners should give as much profit as the margin will allow, you know, give everybody a piece of the pie, you know, and they're going to be much less likely to burn out. Um, but if you're burned out, you know, consider, you know, what you're doing is it is you love what you're doing or is that you love what you're doing, but you're in the doing it in the wrong place. Polly, as we wrap up here, I know a lot of us follow you very closely because we love to hear what you have to say. Are there any things that we can look forward to coming up this month? Where can we find you? Oh, I, I appreciate that. Um, uh, and thank you for everybody. I'm always so humble by people and the, the, the beautiful things that they say to me and the fact that they want to hear what I have to say and read some <laughs> of my stuff. So it's really, it's really is humble. And I'm always forever great, grateful to all the positive comments. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you follow me at the, you know, heart's, uh, um, thoughts and rants of a behavior scientist. I have a podcast there. If you're in to education, the crisis in education podcast, um, I really encourage everybody. I'm part of the board of the world behavior analysis day Alliance. And, uh, you know, we have our own behavior day, which is freaking pretty cool, man. And so we have a YouTube channel and a website. So subscribe to those things. We have an Instagram, uh, behavior analysis day, Instagram, uh, account, as well, but the YouTube channel has got some great things and help us disseminate, share that stuff out. Um, Anika and I are actually working on a, uh, uh, a, a book called uh, The Second Part of Quick Wins. It's going to be Quick Wins and Sustainable Gains. Uh, so Very it's going to cool. be a 2.0, yeah, um, uh, with uh, Key Press uh, through ABA Technologies, which is pretty cool. So I'll be working on that. And uh, the Behavioral Toolbox, which is a big one. Um, we are uh, putting together a, a asynchronous course uh, and the, it's going to be everything behavior, but the, we're starting with school consulting. And so whether you're working in a school or outside of the school, it's really about the application of OBM for making a positive difference. And it's kind of like all those tools that they don't teach you in, uh, you know, in school. And it, uh, and it also kind of clears away the behavioral myopia lens and sure. you know, talks about, you know, Very what important. are some of the changes that 
that we need to engage in. So uh, we're going to have the first course coming out by the end of the year. And there's going to be like, you know, we're going to continue to layer that stuff on. So be on the lookout for the behavioral toolbox. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Awesome. Awesome. I will link your, uh, your, the Instagram pages that you mentioned, your podcast and everything you just said into our show notes. Dr. Polly Gloves, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. It was fun. Of course it was. See you guys next time. Ha, ha, ha.